Hello, kindred spirits, and welcome to Modcast, the podcast of the Ella Montgomery Institute, broadcasting from the beautiful campus of the University of Prince Edward Island. We're so glad you've tuned in. This is Modcast Season 2, Episode 4. I'm your host, Dr. Brenton Dickerson. In our quest to discover cutting-edge scholarship about the life and works of Lucy Ma Montgomery and join imaginative readers throughout the world, we welcome to the microphone our special guest, Julie A. Sellers. Julie Sellers is currently a Spanish professor at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Born and raised in the Flint Hills of Kansas, Julie was awarded the Kansas Authors Club 2020 Award for Prose Writer of the Year. A lifelong reader of Ella Montgomery's works, in 2021, Julie released her collection of poems called Kindred Verse, poems inspired by Anne of Green Gables. This collection involves photographs, reflections, and poems in conversation with the eight Anne books by Ella Montgomery, rooted in images of home, the natural, and the adventurous imagination. Kindred Verse is a reflection of how Montgomery's works and the character of Anne have reshaped Julie's own sense of the possible. Julie, welcome to the Modcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. Good. So glad to have you here uh, since we met, um, I guess, three years ago now, uh, a little bit more than that. And uh, we want to start with our, our, our chat about this book and books with books. Okay. So uh, we want to join other Modcast listeners with a conversation about what we're reading these days. And um, I've just been a panelist in the Hugo Awards, which is Speculative Fiction Awards, which was held in uh, Washington in D.C. A, a, a couple of weeks ago. And I was a panelist for that program representing Susanna Clark's Paranese. And it's just such a weird book that I actually finished it, presented it, and started it all over again, this time with this super evocative audio reading by Chiwetel Ejiofor, I believe his name is. And uh, I'm also reading a novel by one of my past students, which is super cool. Olivia Robinson, her debut uh, novel, Blue Moth Motel by Breakwater Press. And it's kind of cool because it has some local uh, things in it, uh, some Prince Edward Island things in it. And I'm reading through A Name for Herself. This is the collection of Ella Montgomery's nonfiction that Ben Lefebvre published uh, fairly recently. And it's, it's I'm in the her university days period. So what about yourself? Uh, what are you reading these days, Julie? Well, I have been rereading quite a bit of Latin American literature in preparation for teaching my spring class. Um, but for fun, I have finished the Rivers, Rivers of London series by Ben Aronovich. That was a really fun series to read. And the author describes it as if you took Harry Potter and kind of mixed it with a police detective novel. And so it's really interesting. And then I turned around and I decided I would reread Popol Vuh. Um, again, in preparation for my spring class, I thought I haven't read that for a while. And Popol Vuh is very interesting. It's a Mayan document. It contains the Mayan story of creation um, and the creation of humankind. And it also talks about the origins of the Quiche people. Wow. So I reread that. And then I found that there had been a recent publication in 2020 by Latin American scholar Elon Stavins, and it's in English, entitled Popol Vuh, A Retelling. And it contains some beautiful illustrations by Gabriela Larios. She's a Salvadoran folk artist. So I really recommend that oh. if you're looking for something different and interesting that has both the visual along with a really good story. Well, that's amazing. I was so fascinated with, I guess, probably more the Aztecs than the Mayans growing up because like the old materials I was getting in my terrible local library 
like some of the Mayan stuff is actually fairly new scholarship, right? This last half century, I think, right? Um, that, um, a lot of that. And so was the first thing that you were reading it in, in Spanish first or like in, in one of the Mayan tongues? Like what, how, how did you first access that? It was in Spanish, and that opens up a whole can of worms when we talk about the Popol Vuh, mm. because it was written down after the conquest. Yeah. And it's, it contained the orality because it would have been first told as stories. And so it really grips you as a reader because it has retained that. But it was actually a Spanish priest who knew the indigenous language and wrote it down in the indigenous language using Roman character characters and then translated it to Spanish and sometimes he glosses it and right. so this is one of the topics I actually want to discuss with my students in a unit on representation of the Americas who gets to decide how the Americas are represented what voices do we get to hear because yeah. even in that translation of it what was real what was changed by the translation what was maybe affected by the point of view yeah but no no um December 21st, end of the world discoveries in this particular reading. You did okay this time? Doing okay this time, yes. And <laughs> and that that's a whole, again, that so, really brings up quite the can of worms. Was that you, 2012? You talk yeah. about Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. that was 2012. Yeah, that's pretty terrible. So the, uh, yeah, I, I just actually finished reading about a month ago, again, for this, the Hugos, Rebecca Roanhorse, uh, an American writer. I, I think she, she kind of came out of like Star Wars, wrote one of the Star Wars standalone novels or something, but so sci-fi writer. So she's uh, so, so a, like an indigenous black writer from the U.S. And, and lives in an indigenous family. And then but wrote basically created a whole kind of fictional world based upon some of the Mesoamerican legends of various kinds in this new book called Black Sun. It's super fascinating. It's a very complex and beautiful world build that she did. I'm quite amazed by it. I, I hope to read it again when when the second book comes out because it's not it's not set up like a standard like fantasy trilogy that that one full adventure's done. It's kind of just stopped like after a big moment. And so I really am anxious to see what comes next. So yeah. So I still am curious about that Mesoamerican kind of world, I guess. Yeah. I could never say Quetzalcoatl. Quetzalcoatl. Thank you. Excellent. Good stuff. So I've had my lesson. I've had some lesson for the day. Well you're you're a Hispanist by trade in your scholarship work and i think you actually wrote about um i think when we first met you were talking about Anne shirley as a uh, quixote character don quixote character this kind of great spanish um spanish uh, i don't know is hero is not exactly the right word i guess but uh figure and so i'm actually reading don quixote for the first time full way through and i just started book two a couple of days or the second book a couple of days ago do, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you mean by Anne Shirley now I suppose not just as a quixotic character but as actually a Don Quixote figure yeah well a quixotic character is someone who is an avid reader and Don Quixote was of chivalrous romance <laughs> and this begins to impact the way they see the world they start to view the world through the lens of that literature with Anne Shirley that's romantic literature and reading is a very, very much a central part of these characters' lives. And you will see them discussing reading with other characters. And of course, we see this with Anne. Even yeah. if those other characters might not know what she's talking about, she still is using the language and referencing reading as a point of departure for understanding the world. 
and making sense of it. But they take it a step further. Further, These characters will discuss, not only discuss reading, they try to embody the literature. And this is what leads to their misadventures. Don Quixote, thinking that he really is a knight errant, goes out and, and has an entire series of misadventures. And some of them are pretty dangerous. He ends up beaten and bruised. It's pretty ugly. Mm. And Anne Shirley, in trying to embody literature, falls off a ridgepole, right? Yeah. I shall do it or perish in the attempt. <laughs> Sinks in a boat while playing Elaine. Scares herself silly with her haunted wood. There are so many misadventures we can think about that are the result of Anne trying to embody literature or transpose this romantic world onto Avonlea. This is not only an enactment of identity, it really emphasizes creation, writing as creation. And I always think of Anne naming, naming mm. places, naming yeah. uh, trees, naming her geranium. And I think the other thing that I always remember with these, these quixotic characters is the way that they use literary illusion. They use it as a way to make sense. So they're not just quoting for the sake of quoting. That's how the world makes sense. And of course, Anne always does this. And some of the quotes are really from literature. Some are made up. But this is very typical, not only of a quixotic character, but of the fully developed quixotic novel. Yeah, well done. That's that's a really elegant argument. Um, so, <laughs> is, <laughs> so Don Quixote's friends, the people trying to take care of him, uh, they think he's gone mad from too much reading, and this is an occasional accusation that we that we see, um, like of, of various figures throughout history uh, since since Don Quixote. What about Anne Shirley? Did she go mad through too much reading? I think I would not say she went mad because yeah. she comes back, and that is part of the genre in which Montgomery wrote the domestic romance. She grows up. She even herself says, "Well, I when when." Um, she's talking about not using words that are quite as long. She says, I'd rather think my pretty thoughts than share them, you know, and you do notice that the dialogue changes and it changes. So she is brought more back into the practical world of Avonlea, but I would always say not entirely because we see through the other books, these moments of creativity and imagination. Uh, she doesn't let those run away with her anymore as she did in the case mm -hmm. of the haunted wood. Usually she's always just doesn't completely believe them. She knows that they're not true. The haunted wood is the one case where her good imagination goes wrong mm. and she scares herself silly. <laughs> well done. I wonder though, too, like, I don't know. I think there's something a little different too about Anne's quixotic nature and that like she sees that literary imagination and embodies it, as you say, uh, renames her world as Don Quixote does, uh, and 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 I think that really helps us see and seeing the world actually is a little different than her neighbors do, right? At, at least, uh, particularly in the first hundred or so pages, hundred and fifty pages of the first Anne book. But she does kind of trans. She does make the world a bit more magical, doesn't she? Doesn't she transform that world? So, like, it's not it's not just sort of literary madness she's it's actually literary transformation of her world. do you know what i mean like what i'm trying to get at yes and it really is the creative aspect she creates yeah. the world to the extent that the other characters even begin to use her names for the places when they when they refer yeah. to those same places they call them right. by the name she has given them so they she really even helps write them into a new world and a new identity 
Yeah, there you go. I don't know if anyone ever used White Way of Delight, though. I think that was one that, <laughs> that she ended up just keeping for herself. So we're still using Lover's Lane, right? Of course. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, so I'm, I'm always intrigued to hear of guests' uh, Montgomery encounters. And, um, and, and so I want to connect people back to your ch chapbook, this Kindred verse, this beautifully designed uh, volume that I mentioned in the intro. And you share in your preface about this decades-long friendship that you have had with Anne Shirley. And, and I was reading through your book, and, and there's this one poem piece, A Home for Imperfect Girls. <laughs> and you write this, this, lovely, this um, lovely new word, I am far sick for Green Gables. And I suppose Green Gables seems pretty far away right now in the midst of all these kind of border closures and things like that. And then you talk about the house, the, the house that summons hearts with its siren call to kindred spirits around the globe and across the years. Can you, would you share with us a little bit of that first meeting with this lifelong kindred spirit, Anne Shirley? Definitely. I can remember it very clearly. I was 14 and I had gone to Manhattan, Kansas with my older sister and parents. Uh, it was the summer before her senior year in high school, and she was going to visit Kansas State University. I was not interested. I could have cared, could, I could not have cared any less about a college visit at that point. And I got through the book I had brought, and I think I was probably not being terribly quiet about being there in the heat, doing something that didn't interest me, and now without reading material. So we went into a bookstore in the part of Manhattan known as Aggieville. It's just right by the college campus. And it no longer exists, but it was there when I went, did eventually go to Kansas State myself. And my father told me he would buy me one book. Now, he didn't say this, but I think the message was, if you'll be quiet on the 90-mile drive home. Right. So I remember my sister was looking at something in the bookstore, and I had narrowed it down to two books. And for the life of me, I can't remember what the other one was. But I picked Anne. At the last minute, I had to pick one, and I picked Anne, and I started reading. And I was definitely quiet on the whole trip home. I was probably quiet the rest of that day. I don't yeah. think it took me very many days to read that book. And in Anne, I discovered someone with whom I had quite a lot in common. And I not only discovered that person as a character, I discovered what she would have called that person, a kindred spirit. Awesome. And and I love the, we talked about Ant's capacity for literary imagination. I, I, I envy that childhood young adult ability to devour a book. I mean, I read for a living and yet I, I still can't pin myself to a text, right? Very effectively. I'm a very slow reader. So, so I can, I'm sure that you inhaled that book i'm sure right so yeah yeah, yeah. i just I actually just um, um met a seven-year-old man who just visited prince Edward island who inhaled the book as well reading it for the first time though being an english lit scholar uh, for his whole life so so i think that can happen at any uh, kindred spirits can arrive at any moments right yeah, yeah. So, so last year, so Kinderverse came out, I believe, summer of 2021, right? And then in, yeah, in 2020, uh, we, um, you published a poem with the Journal of Ella Montgomery Studies uh, called uh, Windows, right? Um, and you subtitled this A Golden Shovel Poem After Ella Montgomery's Little Gable Window, right? Okay. Uh, and this is part of this 
a collection of verse that's been inspired by Am and and some of Montgomery's works. I would love for you to 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 read this uh, this verse for us. Would you, did you, did you want to set up first for us like what you mean by a golden shovel poem and what the little gable window meant? Because I mean I understand what you mean, and and the reflection back actually through and back to Montgomery herself too, right? So do you do you want to set that up or do you want to read the poem and then and then kind of make that connection? I'll set it up and then I'll read the poem. Great. So a golden shovel poem is a poem that really for me is a dialogue with another poet and another piece of poetry. So to write a golden shovel poem, you select a verse from another piece of poetry. And each word of that verse then becomes the or line. Sorry, that's the Spanish creeping through verso. Each <laughs> word of that line then becomes the last word of each of your lines of poetry. So I selected Montgomery's poem, The Little Gable Window, and the line that reads, by the little gable window of that cottage far away. And those were the last words of each of my lines. This is my poem, Windows. Like an old friend, these pages turn and take me by the hand, away to Prince Edward Island and the distant space where I yet dream a little. Maud's signal beckons from Anne's east gable, calling through the years with her light in the window. It blinks across time and space in flashes of kindred code, a magnet, a beacon that reaches this dreamer at a window in a Kansas cottage, scribbling her own purpley verses, sending them far, droplets of light like dandelion seeds born away. Lovely. That's great. Thank you, Julie. Thank you. The, um, yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. I, I, I've, I haven't been in all of Montgomery's houses and when, you know, you know, doesn't, <laughs> doesn't exist. And so um, I've thought about those gables, but um, even being at the Bidford manse last summer and then looking, she had the, a room that had a, a, an inside or gable window. I can't remember which, and, but looked out over, um, there's kind of a bay there that, that that goes down through the fields and 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 I'm struck by I think anyone who reads Montgomery's work is struck by the natural the 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 landscape all those you know and, and I think you like all of that kind of textural reality that exists within both her poetic and her novel texts. So I, and I, and I think you catch a lot of this sense of space in the collection through the pages of this book. So like through, through this poem to um, Montgomery's poem to Anne's Gable window. And, and I see that kind of link between, I guess your Kansas, I don't know if you have a Gable window, but your Kansas <laughs> writing space. And then this, this East Gable window in Prince Edward Island. Um, it's, you also capture it in the very first poem, Kindred Spirits. Would you, would you also read that one for us? Certainly. Kindred spirits. You are there. I have never met you. Heart beating in time with mine. We meet along the red dirt roads in lover's lane, among the blossoms of violet veil, and share a prickly thrill in the shadows of the haunted wood. We dream of a bosom friend, puffed sleeves, winning the Avery, Matthew's faith in us, and a Gilbert's devotion. Anne dreamed us all into being, this community of like-minded souls. And you are there, waiting to be discovered, around the bend in the road, 
across the miles and years, the turning of the page. Wow. Wow. Now, I, mean, I struck again, I've read this before, and I think this is this, um, I think you've read this on social media somewhere a couple of months ago, right? But that and dreamed us all into being, right? And, and us there, the connection you're making isn't just us as Gilbert and Matthew and everybody else, which of course is dreamed into being by Montgomery, but like Anne creates them as you as you talked about um, with your quick quixotic reference, but us in a sense as readers, as receivers, as people that walk along that same road that bends in various ways, and 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 so I love that c connection between those things. So can you speak personally about how that sense of space, that the you know home landscape journey road. Uh, community plays. How how do you see that working out in Montgomery's fiction and po poetry? Bring that back to us in whatever way that you would like to. Well, obviously, we always address how beautiful Montgomery's prose and poetic descriptions of the natural world of Prince Edmund Island are. And I think it's more than just a description. I think her words are really an invitation for all of us to consider our own surroundings with that artistic and creative eye and to help us learn to discover the different facets of those surroundings so that we can appreciate them more. So when I first began to read Anne, I was able to see myself not only in her, but also in a kindred natural geography. I didn't live by the shore or on an island or at a romantic home named Green Gables, but I could see all of those. I could see them in the sea of waving prairie grass on the farm where I was raised. The trees bordering the creek, which where I was raised was called a crick. Yes. Uh, the trees bordering the creek that ran through our property were just as inspiring as any trees that I might have found in a book about Prince Edward Island. The flowers in the gardens were just as poetic. And I think that what we find is that Anne and Montgomery, they don't invite passive reading of the landscape. They invite reading as a vibrant act. And we are actors within that story. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, like on the f surface of it, I mean, Kansas is pretty far away from Prince Edward Island and you're landlocked. I mean. But then there's these other kind of connections. So so North Rustica, which is just uh, next to Cavendish and Montgomery has some of her Woolner and relatives and friends uh, lived or landed in North Rustica. We grew up uh, on the North Shore calling it the Crick. Right. So the, the creek, mm -hmm. the creek. And and so I, lo I love those sorts of uh, connections. But I also love that that heart summoning phrase, kindred spirits. And it's all throughout your book and the title, of course, Kindred Verse. And you write at one point in dreamed us all into being this community of like-minded souls. You spoke about space. But can you also speak about that? community. What does the Montgomery readership community mean to you? My presentation for the 2020 conference, which I recorded, was about kindred spirits as an imagined community. And that is a theory by Benedict Anderson. Um, it was a theory of nationalism and how nations evolved in the 19th century. And I, I've thought about kindred spirits as an imagined community, and it makes sense to me. Uh, I know they exist, even though I have not seen the entire community of kindred spirits. When I first read Anne of Green Gables, I was pretty sure she was the only kindred spirit I'd ever meet for a long time, until a couple years later when I met one of my friends who is still one of my dearest friends to this day. We share a similar language. 
as part of this community. It's Anne speak. We've all adopted the way she speaks. And there are quotes that we use, expressions that we use, and everyone else in the community will understand us. There are all these points of commonality where we just really feel we click with Anne and by extension, the others who form this community of kindred spirits. So that is how I think of the community of kindred spirits around the globe. And as a result of this project, I've really realized just how truly global that is, much more on a personal level um, than just knowing that people around the world read the book. I had blurb writers for my book come from around the globe. Mm. And I've had readers around the globe, Spain, England, Australia, of course, across Canada and the US, who have shared with me that they purchased the book, that they've read it. A couple have shared pictures of where they've read the book. And so that has really driven that home to me of the, the extent, the breadth, and the depth of this community. And it does mean a lot to me to know that there are others out there who share these same interests and the same love. That's, yeah, no, I think, and I, I, I sort of grieved that the 2020 conference was, was online digital only, although that's where we launched, that's where you, you did your video, which is now on the Montgomery Studies Journal website, and so it's available for, for everybody in the world, but I do grieve that you need that kind of touch in, that connection, I think, um, and so yeah. uh, we're hoping at this point where we're recording um, during the holiday season of 2021, 2022, we're hoping for that that live conference in June. Um, uh, so, look, are you, let's take a little break. Are you up for a flash round? Sure. Okay, so these are yes. some nonsense questions, uh, not the great stuff from Captain Jim's parlor, but like the not so uh, unponderable, un understandable ponderables, I guess. Just real questions you just have to answer in a flash. You can't think about them, and then you'll you know, you just answer and then we, we'll see how the conversation goes from there. Sound good? Sounds good. Good, good. Where is your writing desk? It is in my home office, which happens to be right beside the front door. <laughs> <laughs> right, right beside the front door. And so like, do you have a, a view or does that actually make writing difficult? I have a view and I need a view to be able to write. The window's behind me, but I have an L-shaped desk. So when I turn from my computer, I can look out it or I have a chair beside the window and I love to sit there and just let the sunlight come in and inspire me. Yeah. And when do you tend to write poetry? When does that come to you? Morning, night, noon? I'm best in the morning and to get it done before work, I often get up early, say around 5.15 a.m. so I can sit and write before I go and start the day. That was Montgomery's practice when she was teaching anyway, right? Was to and probably when she was trying to avoid annoying her grand or grandparents when she was younger as well, right? So um and and if, as a writing companion, are you like a coffee person, tea person? I usually make tea to begin the day. And other times I do like a nice, I like strong coffee. I often usually drink it decaf the older I get so that I can sleep at night. Um, it just depends on the time of day and the mood that I'm in. So far this morning, I have had a cup of tea early and then a cup of cafe con leche, coffee and milk with mm -hmm. a nice little Christmas cookie as a mid-morning pick-me-up. <laughs> you're really taking your uh your latin american uh studies speciality there seriously if you're you know um gonna drink latin american as well right so is the yes. so if you could pop your your writing desk like like anywhere would you would like would you leave it in kansas or would you put it in prince edward island or would you place it somewhere else like where where would that ideal writing spot be 
I think I would leave it in Kansas. Yeah. Um, I think that inspires me. I lived outside of Kansas for about 15 years. And I don't know that it was only because I moved back that I began to do more creative writing, but it certainly has blossomed since I've been back here. So I would, I would definitely leave it in Kansas. Well, I think that allows you to look at Prince Edward Island differently too. Like, like I think of the Muskoka, Montgomery's Muskoka book, the um, uh, Blue Blue Castle, right? Where she, um, well, I mean, she, she's writing it, but like she, she has sort of two layers of description that just have a whole different kind of feeling than the Prince Edward Island books do, right? So um, yeah, not good. Um, and uh, October or June? June. Yeah. Oh, you wrote an October poem, but you're still June. It's still June. I, I just love spring and summer. Okay. I am always cold. So even, I mean, October can be beautiful, but in this part of the, of the country of the U S the colors aren't always beautiful. The conditions have to be just right. And if you have pin oak trees, five of which surround my home and no maples, <laughs> if the conditions aren't just right, all you get are brown leaves that are annoying. So <laughs> <laughs> we get, I have a great maple tree, but I, I've had the tar mold or whatever it is for quite a number of years. We just can't get rid of it. So the, it doesn't turn that, um, doesn't turn burgundy. It just kind of turns brown in the fall. So it's a little disappointing. If you were to like, what do you do to escape, like pop in a film, go for a walk, skydiving? What is your escape mechanism? I love to walk. I have always loved to walk and I would ramble around the countryside near the farm where I grew up. I live in town now and I still like to just take walks either with my husband and dog or even by myself. It's just, there's something about the movement and the feeling of movement. Of course, getting the blood pumping perks up my brain, the smells, the sights, the sounds, and even just the rhythm of my feet on the pavement really are a great way for me to relax and escape. Hmm, nice, nice. And what's poetically speaking, where does your inspiration come from? Like, I know you've mentioned Montgomery. One of the poems was a response to one of Montgomery's own poems. Where does where does your poetry voice? How has that been shaped? Like, who do you read? Everything, <laughs> everything under the sun, and of course, so much in Spanish, which can right. definitely have an interesting impact. Some of the images that I uh, have most loved have come from poetry in Spanish. One of the ones I'm thinking, because I just reread this poem, is a poem by Ruben Darío. He's a Nicaraguan poet, one of the great modernists from Latin America. And one of his most famous poems is entitled Sonatina. And there's a line that talks about, translated, the vague dragonfly of some vague dream. And I've always loved that because growing up in the country and seeing dragonflies, that little glint of light off the wings is something that is just gorgeous. And to have captured that in poetry, I think is absolutely amazing. So mm. it, it the inspiration for my poetry can come from many places. As I just told a group of Kansas authors a couple of weeks ago when I spoke to them, I think there are two eyes in writing. One is inspiration. And I'm very visually inspired. Mm. I'm a visual learner. Things I remember things in movies, not as like little snapshots or words or facts I remember in moving pictures. Mm. Um, but there's also intentionality. And so when I sit down at 5.15 a.m. on a Monday morning before I have to go teach class, there is not a lot of inspiration. So sometimes <laughs> I will just pick a form that I want to explore or play with 
or I will get out the old box of magnetic poetry and very, in a very difficult way, just grab a word and say, okay, we're going to use that word and go. So sometimes I truly do feel that flash as Montgomery would describe it of inspiration. Mm. And other times it's, I'm going to write something because this is my time to write and I will try something out. It may not be great and it may end up being fantastic. Hmm. There's a word, I can't remember what Montgomery said, speaking about sort of, sort of sardonically responding to some reviewer who talked about her breezy writing or something like that, you know, talking about like internship or like apprenticeship, like this long, she spent years shaping that, that craft. Did you remember that? I don't know if you know the word that I've lost, but. I don't remember the exact word, yeah. but I do remember that. But it fits with your eye, right? The intentionality of it, right? The, yeah. And we don't get to see that like in the Emily of New Moon series because like she she separates herself from her poetry for a long period in, in the book series, right? So we don't get to see her struggle through with just the, sometimes <laughs> there's only intentionality and no inspiration, right? So. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so, something you said kind of struck me too, like thinking about, um, I've been thinking about Don Quixote, the Cervantes Don Quixote, and, and I wrote in my <clears throat> my journal that sometimes he's a better storyteller than some of his characters, right? Which is a funny phrase, right? Because he writes, uh, he has presumably written the whole thing, right? Like, you know, it's his, his, his narrative and he's very playful about that. But there's sometimes the storytellers and poets aren't very good storytellers and poets, right? But it seems to me in the Blue Castle Montgomery's novel, like she's a better like uh, is a Barney is a better like nature writer, <laughs> right? Than Montgomery is, right? And there's this kind of layered playfulness there that just kind of struck me um, as we've been talking about these lands and 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 locations. Um, did did we take were, were we together in that workshop at the 2018 conference on nature writing? Is is that yes? Yeah, that's right. Good. So do you do like exercises of like, do you, do you look at something and try and describe it? Or do you try and create something and then talk about it? Do you do that sort of exercise uh, as part of like landscape and nature connection? Yes. Uh, in fact, one of the more recent poems I have written, not related to Montgomery, was an ekphrastic poem about Monet's impression Sunrise. Okay. And I wrote it for a contest where the idea was you were to write a poem using only one sense. But it had to be a crastic. Hmm. And so I decided to use sound because I am very first and foremost visual, but then I'm an auditory learner, pretty close. And I didn't win the contest, but I thought, well, this isn't a very, this is a pretty good poem. <laughs> and the Kansas Authors Club's annual competition was coming up. And so I decided, well, maybe it would work as performance since hmm. it all is all based on sound. And of course, Impression Sunrise, I decided to go outside. And so I went on the bluffs above the Missouri River, because mm. Atchison, Kansas is right on the Missouri River, mm. and recorded this poem as Impression Sunrise. And so when I was, there were so many things mixing when I wrote this poem. I've always loved that painting, even though there isn't a lot of color. And for the most part, I really like color more than gray. Mm. But it was on the front of one of my piano books of music of Claude Debussy when I was taking piano lessons. And I actually probably did the best in competitions playing Ballade by Debussy on the piano. And so all of these things came together. So marrying that image with sound um, and trying to express 
through the musicality, first when I played the piano and then of words, all really came together. And then I found this beautiful location where I knew the scenery around me was what I was trying to convey. And I did really well. I won first place in the performance oh. poetry contest. Oh, nice. I've never done performance in my life. <laughs> That's lovely. So to re- responding just to that visual image really did work for me. Oh, good. That's really and so the book. Your book has Kinderverse has a number of photographs. Um, these are mostly your own uh, pieces. Um, some around Cavendish and and Green Gables. Some other Prince Edward Island scenes, and some I believe your own garden or somebody else's nice flower garden. So what do what do the photographs do? Were they inspiration for poems? Are they things that help express things for the reader? What did you want with that visual and well, I guess, uh, right, word, the text and image, what did you want us to receive in that? So these are my pictures. I just took, <clears throat> excuse me, the two times I've been to Prince Edward Island. Uh, my husband and I went in 2006 for our honeymoon, and then we went mm. again in 2018 for the <laughs> conference. And so some of them were taken, taken on the cell phone. Others were just the 35 millimeter camera, and I've never had a photography class in my life, but I'm mm-hmm. very visual, and I know when something makes me go, oh, that's beautiful, I love it. Uh, and then some are from around here, from the place where I grew up, the farm where I grew up, and also my own surroundings here in Atchison. Mm. And I hadn't exactly intended to put photographs with the poems when I first launched this project. But when I, well, Blue Cedar Press reached out to me after the 2020 Kansas Authors Club convention when I won Prose Writer of the Year, and they asked me if I was working on anything. And I said, well, by the way, I am. And I just, this was very informal. And they said, well, do you have photographs? That sounds really beautiful. Mm. And I thought, photographs? I said, well, I do. And sometimes when I would write the poetry, it would be the photograph that would spark the poem. Other times I would write the poem and say, that reminds me of a photograph I have. Mm. So it kind of went both ways. Fortunately, when we went to design the book, I did not have to design the book or work with the photographs. One of my coworkers at Benedictine College, Professor Jay Wallace, Uh, actually did that for me. And he had years of work in printmaking. So he knew inside and out what to do. And that is truly why these photographs look as good as they do. He was able to take the tourist down of the background. And one is, we we laugh often about this. There is one of a bench with some yellow iris. And that was on the farm where I grew up. And as we started to look over the proofs, I said, Jay, there's a hog shed in the back. Can you make that disappear? That's not terribly (laughs) romantic, to use Anne's word. So he really worked wonders. And I think that marriage of the visual and the, the poetry is so important because when you read Montgomery, you see what she wants you to see. But of course, each of us is going to see that slightly differently because we're bringing all those experiences that we have of our own with us. And I think that that is what I was trying to do is suggest an image even though it is actually a photograph, they're still kind of nostalgic. They're kind of this vignette look. It's enough to suggest it and sort of spark the imagination to go along with the piece of poetry. Hmm. Well, that's I, I appreciate that. And it worked for me as a reader. It's a little surprising because there's a cohesiveness to the pictures throughout. So your designer did a great job uh, considering the gaps and, and I guess the different textures that those cameras might have of, of drawn and out naturally right so that that works out pretty well um you're a more visual reader i think than i am i don't know that i quite 
visualize. I think it's always kind of sitting on the edge of the imagination. So I tend to read poetry aloud when I when I read it. Um, and now one of the things that you do in Kindred Verse is you have a, a number of like little character studies. And we saw that, I think, with the poem that you read above, you know, the note about Matthew and Gilbert. So you do a, little, a few little character studies. And this is my... Uh, favorite one and these are by little i mean quite quite small these there's these little snapshots in in word can, can you read this matthew cuthbert one please certainly and when i decided to do these i i asked myself what more could i say montgomery the genius had already created these unforgettable characters and so that's why i decided when i did the character sketches or character studies to use short forms and matthew cuthbert this poem is a sinquane Okay. Pale as sweet blossoms lace entwined o'er the white way, so too the final presence on his face. That's pretty evocative. Capsule. That's a lot in, in just a few words. And I think will connect for um, not just the readers, but the ones that have kind of fell in love with Matthew in, in the film. Um, I, I'm thinking I. For me, it was more the 80s miniseries, the Kevin Sullivan, but then also the the more recent Anne with an E, I think was a pretty effective Matthew character, right? So yes. um, in the cast of characters, do you, do you walk with any that Montgomery made? Like, so she's got hundreds and hundreds of characters, but like in the, you know, the Anne books and the dozens of main characters, do you walk with any of those characters in a way that that's special to you? So probably everybody thinks that they are like Anne Shirley, but I really feel like I was a lot like Anne Shirley growing up. And I think that's <laughs> why when I started to read the book, I thought, oh, here I am. Um, I could get so caught up in my own thoughts that I would do like forget the turkey and the turkey Petrozini, very similar to forgetting the flour and the cake. Um, <laughs> I could misplace things. I could lose all track of time because I was reading and I definitely was the black sheep in the family. Nobody else was that into literature. Everybody was a good, practical, solid Midwestern family. And here I just could lose track of time. Uh, and so it, it seemed like I could always find trouble. I just attract trouble. And huh. I still feel like I do. Not that long ago, I was making muffins. And instead of forgetting the flour, I accidentally added an extra cup. It's just sometimes I wonder if, if I'll ever grow out of it. <laughs> and that dream of writing was certainly very much a part of Anne that called to me all across the years that I've read. If I left Anne aside, I would have to say Valency Sterling. Oh, really? Because I always felt I, on my father's side, I was the youngest cousin. And sure. throughout my life, it was, well, you need to do this like so-and-so and that like this cousin and this like that aunt and that like, and I really got tired of it. Yeah. I, I really felt like no matter what, what I did, it wasn't going to be what was expected. And so reading The Blue Castle has always kind of given me just this little glimmer of, aha. Oh, nice. It will be okay. Did you have, did you have, so Valency doesn't start off with a sense of humor, but develops one very quickly into Blue Castle, or I mean, we don't know, of course, but like, everything seems absurd to her at some, like, at, at, I don't want to give too much of the story away for those who haven't encountered it yet, but um, everything's absurd after a certain point about, like, maybe just 
30 pages into the book, everything changes for her. Did you have that absurd view of your family as they chatted about you at dinner tables or, or was that always like intensely feeling uh, oriented? Oh no, I, I can definitely get the sense. I, I definitely had the sense of humor um, okay, that would, and it, sometimes it would be really hard not to laugh. Yeah. And that again is where a good imagination will save you because you can try to imagine something else. But yes, a sense of humor and I, it's not just with your family. Sometimes you get in a professional setting, a meeting where you think, oh my goodness, seriously. Um, and it's just, it's very helpful. And Valency has definitely been someone that I felt I have walked with in my, in my time. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. No, that, that's really intriguing. Wow. There we go. I, ha I guess I haven't quite thought. I, I, I've, I read that book so much as a standalone that it almost seems to me like a separate thing, right? The Blue Castle. Mm -hmm. So, so let's let's wrapping things up. What's what's on your desk? What's on your to do list? Like, what are you doing? Like scholarly projects, writing projects, artistic projects. What's up for you uh, in the days to come? Well, scholarly, I have just published a chapter in a book, a handbook on teaching during times of being disrupted. It has a very long title. Um, and I have been looking into active discussion techniques. And this came about when I was teaching fully online last year. And I wanted to have my upper levels engaged so that I mean, I'm not much of a lecturer ever, but I wanted them even more engaged. So I began to research and even design some of my own active discussion techniques for my upper level Spanish classes. Uh, and that's something I have then brought back to the face-to-face -face classes I'm giving this year. And I continue to research that topic because I keep finding new ways to engage learners with material to build them towards alternative assessments that take them to much higher levels of thinking and beyond just simple essays, simple research papers to something much more complex. So I'm looking into that. And I am working on a paper for the 2022 conference entitled, I saw it as a picture in my mind, reflections, mirrors, and the mind's eye in Anne of Green Gables. Mm -hmm. And this is going to look at uh, how literature creates those images in our mind's eye and how it helps promote empathy among readers. So I think that should be fun to mm -hmm. continue to flesh out. Creatively, I do continue to write poetry, also creative nonfiction and fiction. I just submitted a short nonfiction essay on a bicycle built for two to a Kansas publication entitled 105 Metal Lark Reader. And I'm also working on my first novel and I plan to submit it soon for publication. Hopefully I can get a publisher. Yeah. It has some Montgomery inspired themes, but I will leave that as a teaser until such time as it's in print. Oh, it's so hard to talk about that kind of stuff. It's such a long process, right? So you don't want to ever leak leak too many things. Uh, what about po poetically? Do you have is anything else? Is there anything you'd like to share with us? Certainly. I have yeah. a new poem that I wrote especially for this podcast, and it is entitled Benediction. Mm. It's another golden shovel poem. It's after L.M. Montgomery's Air Castles. I read this poem in the collection of scrapbooks that um, Betsy Epperly put together. And the line that I've integrated in my poem is, In my fair castle of the air. So this is benediction. Kindred spirits, may you always see marble halls and cherry trees. Feel peace as you follow my words. Tread a path beneath skies clear and fair. May you build your own blue castle 
and feel the sparkling flash of inspiration. Know the joy of recognition, the hint of sweet Narcissus on the air. Wow, that's so great. And that is a, those are good words, Benedictus, the, the words that send mm -hmm. us out into the world again. Well, Julie, thank you so much for coming and sharing with us today. Well, thank you for having me. That brings us to a close. Um, and I want to encourage uh, listeners to check out our show notes, which has all of the, the different links that we could make back to Julie's work and her connections on her website and her social media. So make sure you follow up and, and in particular, check out Kindred Verse, which I believe you can buy on Kindle as well as um, in in a paperback format. And as always, you can check out the work of the Ellen Montgomery Institute at ellenmontgomery.ca. Um, our website includes interactive features, guest blogs, news about conferences, and calls for papers, and the newest release of the Journal of Ella Montgomery Studies. And if you enjoyed the modcast and would like others to enjoy it as well, please share on social media and give us a rating. It really helps us spread the news about modcast and the Institute's work. And it helps get the word out about this artistry and research that we want to talk about. I'm your host, Brenton Dickinson. I am here with technical director, Christy McKinney. Now, thinking about our conversation today, I want to actually snatch another line from one of Julie's poems, this one from A Sweet and Subtle Spell. And I would wish for us that we will meet somewhere there in the middle of the book. Farewell. <laughs>